so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast, where our goal is to help you to think biblically about today's cultural issues. Today on the podcast, we're talking pro-life advocacy with author and speaker Scott Klusendorf. My name is Jason Thacker, and I serve here at the ERLC on the research team as one of our senior fellows. Our team seeks to provide biblical and theological foundations for our work, rooted in our Baptist convictions. As part of the ERLC podcast, we'll feature special episodes from the research team from time to time to help equip you to think deeply about the most pressing questions we face today in the public square. As we continue our series on life, the research team is bringing you a special interview today with Scott Klusendorf, the author of The Case for Life. Scott is a respected pro-life speaker and advocate best known for his work with Life Training Institute, which prepares Christians to be able to articulate and defend the pro-life movement with both rational and theological arguments. He's participated in debates against abortion advocates such as Planned Parenthood directors and attorneys who have argued for abortion before the Supreme Court. Each year, he trains thousands of pro-life students on how to share their beliefs with classmates and helps them understand common objections to ending abortion. We hope that this long-form interview will begin to help you to begin to understand that Christian pro-life advocacy must be rooted in the image of God and is an intellectually defensible and coherent worldview. Scott, it's really great to have you today here on the podcast. Before we dive in, one of the things I always love to do when I interview authors is hear a little bit about their story and kind of what sparked their interest in in this particular issue. Well, Jason, I've been pro-life as long as I can remember from the time I was in high school. There was never a time where I thought abortion was morally permissible or ought to be legal. But that's very different than saying I was lifting a finger to stop the killing because I was not. I said I cared about the issue, but I really wasn't doing much about it. My pro-life involvement pretty much involved going to the pregnancy center banquet once a year, giving obligatory couple of hundred bucks and going home for the year. Well, that all changed in November of 1990 when a local pregnancy center director in Southern California invited me to a pastor's event that she planned for over 100 pastors. She was thinking we'll get a very good response to this event, and she invited a former Reagan administration attorney to come and speak who had been in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and had legal experience writing bills, cutting off tax funding for abortion. And so everything was perfect. Good meal, good speaker. And you would think that pastors would show up in mass for this. Well, it was me and four other guys and their wives. That was it. But thankfully, the speaker, Greg Cunningham, did not let that deter him. 
And he gave a very intelligent defense of the pro-life view, which was impressive because honestly, I'd heard a lot of pro-life speakers that meant well, but they kind of hurt the brain to listen to. This guy was very intelligent. His name was Greg Cunningham, and he laid out a case, but then Greg did something that changed my life forever. He showed an eight-minute video depicting abortion. Jason, I had never seen abortion, and I sat there and watched that video, and I wept, and I thought, I am no different than the priest and the Levite who passed by the other side of the road when they saw the injustice done to the beating victim. I say I care about this, but I'm not lifting a finger to stop it. I have attitudinal opposition to abortion, but not behavioral opposition to it. And so everything changed for me that day. And six months later, with the blessing of the church where I was serving as an associate pastor, I left to figure out how could I help pro-life Christians do a better job engaging the culture on this issue. So that's been my life's work for the last 35 years. Yeah, that story reminds me of kind of a major shift in the story of moral philosophy. Even you see right after World War II, right during the war, you start to see these visceral images of what the horrors of war and how that really shifted attitude, not only about the war, but also what are we going to do about it? There needed to be a moral reckoning. And as you tell that story kind of about seeing those visceral images of the horrors and the plague of abortion, what really takes place. I mean, it really does change things. It changes your attitude. It changes the actions that we do and that we take. That's one of the things that I love about this book. Obviously, this is the second edition of the book, but I'd love to hear a little of the story. Why did you want to initially write this? And then what is kind of unique about this second edition, obviously in a post-Row world? Good question, Jason. I wrote it because I felt that The original edition, while there was nothing wrong with it per se, it wasn't like there's massive mistakes I had to correct, but it needed updating in light of a post-Dobbs world where Roe v. Wade is no longer the law of the land, and now the battle shifts to the states and individual communities, and I felt that pro-life Christians in particular needed a game plan for engaging a new world on this issue where all of us need to become apologists. We no longer have nine justices on the Supreme Court dictating abortion policy from on high. Now the issue is gonna be fought out in our own churches, our own communities, our own states, and we have to be equipped to make a persuasive case for what we believe. And in particular, with this new edition, I wanted to achieve five objectives. I wanted to help pro-life Christians clarify the debate more persuasively, Secondly, I wanted to help them address the worldview assumptions that are brought to the abortion debate. This is a brand new section that wasn't in the original book, because at that time, you could talk about abortion without necessarily unpacking all the worldview baggage people bring to the discussion. Well, that's not true anymore. If you're talking to somebody that is bought into a thoroughly naturalistic worldview, And you're a pro-life Christian talking about how all humans have intrinsic dignity because they're made in the image of God. Well, you're talking right past that person because in their worldview, the universe came from nothing and was caused by nothing. And that means everything we see is a cosmic accident, humans, animals, whatever stage of development. And so you need to know something about that worldview to engage that person. You also need to understand the postmodern worldview that basically reduces truth to perspectives or language communities? How do we present the pro-life argument in that kind of world? And of course, the new kid on the block, critical theory, 
presents a whole new challenge that if we aren't engaged in challenging what's known as standpoint epistemology, the belief that arguments are not judged on their merits, rather they're judged solely on the standpoint of the person making them, we're going to talk past people who seek to just rule us out from having no legitimate voice in this. So I felt that needed to be addressed. The third is I felt that we needed to know the major thinkers out there. I wanted lay people to know who are the big thinkers out there. Who is Peter Singer? Who is Michael Tooley? Who is Kate Greasley? Who is David Boonin? Who is Jubilini Minerva? You know, these are names that are influencing the abortion debate in academia, and their ideas trickle down to the popular culture. Well, it helps if pro-life Christians know the contours of their arguments and then know a few things to say in response. And then I also felt it was important to know how to handle street-level objections, the kinds of things you'll hear at work. Things like, why do you hate women? You're a man. You shouldn't be allowed to speak on this issue. Or what about illegal abortion, forcing your morality? All those kinds of things we hear at the street level. And then finally, I added a whole new section on how you make a pro-life presentation. What's a game plan for reaching 500 students in your community, whether you're a professional speaker or not. And I go through everything about how to contact schools, how to make an acceptable presentation to a school principal or staff member that would allow you to get in to speak to students, and then what to say when you do get in. So all of that is in the book. I've tried to take what's been in my head for 30 years and put it all on paper. One of the things that I do with my students is I always love to encourage them to define the terms that they're using. It's an intellectual virtue that I seek to cultivate with them to slow down as they enter into a conversation and even in a debate to not only understand the words they're using in the intended meaning, but also what their interlocutor is saying. What are they saying? What language are they using? And so can you help us understand when a pro-life Christian says that abortion is wrong or we employ terms like pro-life, pro-woman, pro-choice, pro-abortion, What are we actually getting at? What are we actually saying in terms of pro-choice, pro-abortion, pro-life, and that idea that abortion is wrong? Where might the conversation break down if we're engaging somebody from a different worldview? The minute you say anything is wrong in today's culture, you run the risk of sparking controversy because we live in a culture that thinks morality is not objective, it's subjective. In other words, reality does not correspond to the way things really are in the world. Rather, it's something each of us generates from our own perspective. That's a worldview, of course, known as relativism. And so when pro-lifers say abortion is wrong, they are not saying they dislike abortion. They're not saying they personally oppose it. They're not saying it's even distasteful. It's quite possible to like something and still say it's wrong. For example, My 90-year-old father-in-law has a new Corvette. I would very much like to go take that thing for a joyride up PCH in California when he's off on a ski trip. But I'm not going to do it. Why? Because even though he would never know, and even though I would like to do it, it would be wrong. So morality is not about what we like or prefer. It's about what's right or wrong, regardless of our preferences. So I think it's important when we talk to secular audiences to define what we mean by the word wrong. The basic pro-life argument we're making can be stated as follows. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. Conclusion, therefore abortion is wrong. Now that formal argument might be mistaken. It could be that my argument is invalid. The conclusion doesn't follow, 
or maybe it's unsound. One or more of the premises are false. But you can't just dismiss a pro-life argument by saying, well, that's just your personal view. What you've done at that point is change the kind of claim the pro-lifer is making. When pro-lifers say abortion is wrong, our claim is objective, not subjective. So we need to be careful to define what we mean by wrong. I think we also need to be careful to define what we mean by abortion. It is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And that's not just our view. There are people on the other side that explicitly teach this. Dr. Warren Hearn, who's written the book Abortion Practice, the medical teaching text that teaches abortion procedures, says that we've got to stop denying the truth of the matter. That when you deal, especially with second trimester abortions, you are dealing with an act of killing that we should no longer cover up. Let's tell the truth. He says the sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. Feminist Camille Paglia says that abortion is murder. We ought to call it that, and we ought to get rid of the term pro-choice. It's intellectually dishonest. These aren't pro-life advocates. These are pro-abortion advocates making these claims. So I think it's helpful if we define those two terms in particular to make sure that our audience knows the kind of claim we're making. And by defining our terms clearly, I think we get the conversation off to a better start. Yeah, I think one of the most important aspects of the entire kind of pro-life debate and kind of the pro-life movement centers on the question of the humanity of the pre-born child. In our current culture, many kind of employ this kind of banal language, like a clump of cells or an embryo to describe that human being in the womb. Why does our language matter? When we're using that language, we're describing what this pre-born child is, this human being in the womb. What does that really reveal about the state of the abortion debate in the West when we can employ language like a clump of cells or just an embryo or a fetus instead of saying, no, this is a human being? Well, I think there's a deliberate attempt in the culture to deny what abortion is and cover up the truth. And by the way, this isn't new. I can date this all the way back to the late 60s and 70s. In fact, in 1970, in an editorial in California Medicine, a very prestigious peer-reviewed medical journal, there was an editorial published where the authors say we need to intentionally confuse language to help usher in a new ethic in medicine where killing is overlooked as something not that big of a deal. And they go on to say that everybody knows that abortion intentionally kills a living human being, but we've got to use subterfuge and language changing to kind of fool the public on this if we want to usher in a new ethic in medicine. That's all the way back to 1970. Now what happens is a lot of people simply assume the unborn aren't human. They don't argue for it. They just assume it, which, of course, is question begging. They'll say things like, well, why don't you respect choice? Choice to do what? Uh, they don't say. Or they'll say, you don't trust women. Or, you know what? You don't care about poor women that can't afford another child. Notice that all of these objections assume the unborn aren't human. Would anybody argue that it's okay to kill two-year-olds because they're expensive? Or for that matter, teenage young men eat more than anybody else. Is it okay to kill them to save the budget? Clearly, nobody says yes, but they do say that with the unborn. Why? Because they assume the unborn aren't human. Think of President Biden on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade in 2021, I think it was. He said something to the effect of celebrating Roe v. Wade. He said, reproductive freedom, by which he means abortion, is something all of us should celebrate. Okay, Mr. President, 
with all due respect to your office, does us include the unborn? And if not, aren't you assuming something here? And if so, is it good for the unborn to celebrate dismembering them? You see, he just assumed the unborn weren't human. He didn't argue for it. And this is part of the pattern of trying to use dehumanizing language to obscure what's really happening. things I always have my students read when I teach ethics is have to read Judith Jarvis Thompson's seminal article where she actually admits intellectually honest, this is a human being. And then talking about her infamous violinist argument. What is the basis of this idea? She's acknowledging the fact that this child is a human being, but that this life isn't worth living. Or when we compare apples to apples, we should choose the woman. The woman should have the opportunity to choose in that sense. So where does this argument fail in terms of the violinist argument and the false choice that's being promoted by many pro-choice advocates outside of those extreme and kind of dire situations where something like the physical life of the mother's at stake? Right. Well, for the sake of any of your audience members that might not be familiar with Judith Jarvis Thompson, in 1971, she wrote an essay called A Defense of Abortion, where, as you mentioned, Jason, for the sake of argument, though I don't think she really believes it, she says, let's grant that the unborn are human. And she even goes a step further. Let's grant that they're persons with a right to life. Even so, she argues, abortion can be morally defensible because you cannot force a woman to use her body to sustain the life of another person against her will. And she gives this example of waking up in the morning and finding yourself surgically attached to a world-famous violinist who's been put there by the Society of Music Lovers. This violinist has a kidney ailment, and you alone are a perfect match for him. And as you're waking up and you find yourself having been kidnapped in the night and surgically hooked up to this violinist, you try to detach yourself, but the medical staff appears at your bedside and says, Halt, you can't detach. We know this is an inconvenience for you, but for the next nine months, this violinist needs your body to survive. And though you may wish to detach too bad, he needs your body. If you detach, he will die. And because he's a person with a right to life, you're kind of stuck. And then Thompson asks this question. She says, it certainly would be nice if you let your body be used that way, but must you? Now, that's a pretty bold, in-your-face approach here because she's granting the pro-lifers major premises and still saying, we lose, because you can't force that woman to use her body to sustain the life of another. Here's the number one reason her argument fails. And I want to point out, there's been a lot of writing about this. In fact, I would say lately, her argument has fallen into particular dispute and is no longer enjoying the credibility it once did. I think one of the most powerful rejoinders to her comes from a fellow abortion advocate by the name of Kate Greasley in the United Kingdom. Kate Greasley says, look, the major flaw with Thompson's argument is you can't get from the premise that you have a right to withhold support to the idea that you can intentionally kill someone. In other words, it's one thing to say you can withhold support, quite another to say you can slit your victim's throat in the name of withholding support. For example, suppose that I have a, a blood cancer ailment and you have the perfect blood type for me. And let's say that you deny me a transfusion. You do not allow your blood to be shared with me to save my life. All right, that may be your, your prerogative, but it wouldn't give you the right to slit my throat in the name of withholding support. And this is the flaw in Thompson's argument. 
Abortion is much more than withholding support. It's intentionally killing another innocent human being. I think Francis Beckwith puts it real well. He says calling abortion the withholding of support is kind of like suffocating someone with a pillow and calling it the withdrawing of oxygen. There's a whole lot more going on here than merely withholding support. So that's the fundamental flaw with that argument. One of the things you write about in the book is this idea, this question over a pro-life, whole life ethic, where many pro-life advocates, I think many in good faith, are wanting to adopt the language of this idea of a whole life, pro-life ethic that encompasses much more than just the abortion debate. Obviously, there are many who do this to obfuscate or to wrongly minimize the horrors of abortion to promote some type of choice. But what are some of the dangers from a Outside of those particular circumstances, what are some of the dangers in your mind of kind of making a whole life pro-life ethic? Can't Christians be both pro-life and stand for the dignity of all people as made in the image of God? How do we think about that in terms of what we consider pro-life? Well, you're making a very good distinction, Jason, between those who try to bring up the whole life idea to sabotage the pro-life argument and those who are convictional Christians who say, I want to be Christ-like in all areas of life. There's a difference between those two groups. And let me start with the, the good faith people who bring up whole life because they want to be consistently Christian in their ethic. As a Christian, my ethics should be broad and inclusive. I should care about any issue of injustice that involves the mistreatment of human beings. So therefore, as a Christian, I'm going to care about sex trafficking. I'm going to care about how immigrants are treated. I'm going to care about refugees. I'm going to care about the poor. And my giving and my behavior should reflect that. So that's why as a family, we give to things that go beyond pro-life. We don't just give to pro-life work. We give to other issues that involve the poor, other issues that involve injustice. However, it doesn't follow from the fact that the Christian has a broad ethic of right and wrong, that the operational objectives of the pro-life movement have to be broad and inclusive. And it's a failure to draw that distinction that leads to a lot of conclusion. And the basic question I want to put to everybody is this, how does it follow that because pro-lifers oppose the intentional killing of innocent human beings, they have to fix everything wrong with society? I mean, you can imagine saying to the American Cancer Society, you have no right to call yourself a healthcare or medical organization when you only treat one disease instead of all of them. If you really cared, you'd treat all of them. Well, nobody would say that to them. And yet pro-lifers hear this all the time. You only care about one group, those who are pre-born. You don't care about children in general. There goes your whole argument. Now, again, I want to draw a distinction between those on the outside, people like John Pavlovitz and others, who want to smear the pro-life argument rather than do the hard work of refuting it, and Christians who say, you know, I really want to be concerned about all human suffering. I agree with those Christians who look at that. And again, as Christians, we should care about all these issues, but we want to be careful that we don't say to pro-life organizations that their operational objectives lack legitimacy if they don't take on every issue under the sun. Our organization has made a distinction of is when we talk about we have multiple areas that we do work in, we all flowing from the centrality of the image of God and human dignity to the entire Christian ethic, but in particular, making a distinction between pro-life issues and the broader human dignity issues. 
both matter to God, but there's no hurt and no harm in saying, no, we're really focusing on these pro-life issues. But I think that in some sense, making sure we define our terms can make us not only more effective, but also maybe even more persuasive when we enter into these conversations. People on the outside who bring up, well, what are you doing about the environment? What are you doing about the poor? What are you doing about war? What are you doing about refugees? And they try to use that to discredit the pro-life view. I've called their bluff and I've said to them, okay, suppose pro-lifers like me take on every single issue with equal determination that you demand we take on. Will you now join us in being pro-life? Will you oppose abortion? Jason, 100% of the time they say no. And I do mean 100% of the time. They say, no, women have a fundamental right to an abortion, to which I say, well, why did you bring up all these other issues then if your real argument is they have a fundamental right to an abortion? Argue that. Why are you creating this smokescreen? So I don't know that it will persuade anybody and make us look more marketable. I think it's important to realize people support abortion because as pro-lifers, we're facing a worldview challenge. They don't agree with us that human beings are intrinsically valuable. They don't believe in human equality. In other words, they don't believe each and every human being has an equal right to life. And it's from that worldview that they are arguing against our position. It's really not a marketing question, are we nice enough? It's a worldview challenge that we face. A number of prominent objections to the pro-life cause including the quote, coat hanger objection, questions of tolerance, even the questions of hard cases where there's even a lot of question and even debate within the pro-life movement about how do we navigate some of these quote, hard cases, whether it's the life of the mother or something like that. Can you help us to understand a little bit about what these objections are and how Christians can wisely and persuasively address many of these objections? Yeah. Well, let me pick the ones that are, I think are most prominent that your listeners are likely to hear at the street level. At the street level, the most popular objections are going to be rape, illegal abortion, and why don't you trust women to make their own decisions? So just to take them very quickly, one at a time, take the issue of rape. Don't do what some pro-lifers do. The issue of rape gets brought up in the discussion and they immediately go to statistics. Well, most women who get raped don't get pregnant. Okay, that may be true, but that's a horrible answer when you've just been told about a woman who's been sexually assaulted. Your first response should be one of empathy. What a tragedy. How horrific that this has happened to this woman. And we should minister to her and care for her in every way we can. And then gently point out that the objection assumes the unborn aren't human. Does hardship justify homicide? If I had a two-year-old in front of me and his mother said, hey, his father was a rapist, and every time I look at him, I remember what I went through, to relieve my suffering, I'd like to intentionally kill the two-year-old, would we go along with that? Well, no, we would not. Well, why not? Because everybody would say, well, he's a human being. Ah, if the unborn are human, and we argue in the book they are, if the unborn are human, should they be intentionally killed to make someone feel better any more than we'd kill a two-year-old for that reason? So the issue that we've got to keep coming back to is, what is the unborn? That's the crux of this debate. It's not about rape. It's not about trusting women. It's not about economic hardship or being wanted. So the issue is about the status of the unborn not about these other objections that are often brought up. And once you can show people that once 
these objections are stated as a specific justification for killing an innocent human being, the objection seems to just fall apart. Let's take another one, ectopic pregnancy. Ectopic pregnancy treatment is not abortion, and here's why. Let's go back to our syllogism. We did not argue that all killing was wrong. We did not argue that it's always wrong to interrupt a pregnancy. We argued it was wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. In the case of ectopic pregnancy, a doctor is presented with the following situation. The embryo has implanted on the inner wall of the fallopian tube rather than the inner wall of the uterine cavity where it should be. As that embryo grows in that narrow tube, the danger to the woman is very obvious. She could end up rupturing that tube and hemorrhaging to death. And so you're a pro-life doctor. What do you do? Do you do nothing and let two humans die? Or do you act in such a way that you save one life, even though the unintended but foreseen result is the death of the embryo? And I would argue you should act to save the one life you can. Right away, critics say, oh, you just justified abortion. No, I didn't. Abortion is the intentional killing of the innocent human being, where we not only foresee his death, we intend it. In this case, if we could save the embryo, we would, but we can't, so we do the greatest moral good we can, given the hand we've been dealt, which is to save the mother. One of the questions that I was really glad to see you have in this is kind of engaging the so-called or aptly named abolitionist debate over the best policies in order to end this horrific practice of abortion, especially here in the United States. You rightfully note that all pro-life advocates, true pro-life advocates want to see an end to abortion, but that there's considerable debate on how best to achieve that goal. Can you help to frame up that debate? Even within our own Southern Baptist Convention, there are a myriad of voices on the, quote, abolitionist side or the incrementalist side. Obviously, I want to abolish the practice of abortion. I want to see this ended. But the best practice, the best way to go about that in terms of policy, there's some division in that. Can you help us to understand a little bit about that division, even among brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, and let's start by defining terms. And you're right, all pro-lifers who are truly principled are abolitionists in principle. The question is, what do we do in practice when we can't abolish abortion immediately? If there were a desktop button that I could just push right now that ends abortion right now, I would push it, you would push it, every pro-life person I know would push that button. And the question becomes, when we don't have the votes to do that or don't have the political ability to do that, what do we do then? And my answer is, we should work to limit evil and promote the good insofar as possible. I'm not going to settle on an incremental point as a final principle, like you hear some Republicans saying right now. And, and the abolitionists are correct about these people. You're hearing some politicians right now say, let's just settle on a 15-week ban and let's make that our stopping point and come out with a big marketing campaign saying, that's where we're going to draw the line and we'll go no further. We can't do that. Now, I could see saying, okay, I'll vote to save children after 15 weeks if I don't have the votes to save all of them, but I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to keep coming back until I can protect all of them. We're not going to stop. We will save as many children as we can along the way, but as a matter of principle, we will never say it's okay to unprotect some of them. We're going to move to protect all of them. And if it means we have to save some along the way because we can't save all, that's what we're going to do. What pro-life incrementalists do 
is they refuse to let some children die while we hold out hope for what we hope will be an imaginary or real future where we can protect all children. They are unwilling to trade the lives of children today for a hoped for future where we can protect all of them. And the question I would ask abolitionists who tend to be rather militant on this, if it's wrong in principle to be an incrementalist, what incremental laws on the books today would you like to repeal? Because if they're satanic and evil in principle, you ought to be campaigning to have those laws removed. Uh, Which children are you willing to let die today because you can't protect all of them right now and have to wait for a future date? And that's a question they need to answer. And quite frankly, the Southern Baptist resolution that was passed was deeply troubling to me because it basically called incrementalism evil and that those who who have supported protecting as many children as we can are part of the problem and we're to blame for abortion. And what I welcome is a good faith discussion about how best to end abortion. I have no patience and no tolerance for people who want to poison the well and say things like, well, you don't want to have abortion ended. You wouldn't actually push that abolish button because you want to profit from abortion. So I think the main thing to keep in mind here is principled abolitionist and principled incrementalist should have a good faith discussion. And I have met some principled abolitionists who are good men, people like my friend Jason Storms. We disagree on some things, but we don't impute to each other the worst possible motives. And I fear that that's happened in this debate, that some abolitionists in particular have looked at incrementalists and said, oh, these are people that are to blame for the bloodshed of abortion. They're the ones keeping it going. They're ungodly people. They're sinfully motivated. And there's nothing good about them. They're the problem. And I just can't go there. And I would rather have a discussion with people about, hey, how can we advance legislation that protects as many children as possible? Even abolitionists are incrementalists because notice they introduce bills in individual states. If they were truly abolitionists, they should be introducing federal bills because after all, the essential pro-life argument is that the unborn child has a natural right to life the federal government ought to recognize and respect. So by introducing bills in individual states, they are acting in a geographical incremental way. Now, I think that's fine. But it goes against the idea that incrementalism in principle is evil. We all have to be incrementalists. There's no way around it. Was it wrong to abolish slavery in 1864, even though we did not get rid of racial segregation until 100 years later? And I would say it was right to abolish it. But there's nothing wrong with getting rid of as much of it as you can, given what you have to work with politically. What are some of those kind of big questions that the pro-life cause needs to be thinking about in terms of limiting and ultimately abolishing this horrific practice of abortion? What are some of the other kind of issues that we need to be prepared to kind of engage and give an answer to? Bioethics in general would be the big one because bioethics is not medical ethics. A lot of Christians confuse the two. Medical ethics is How does a doctor treat an individual patient? What's his bedside manner? What's his protocol for treating a particular illness? Bioethics deals with larger worldview questions. What does it mean to be human? When is it okay to withhold or withdraw treatment? Is it okay to 
say to a patient, uh, you know what, your life is no longer having the quality it should, so we're going to disavow treating you. These are larger worldview questions that bioethics entails, and the Christian worldview stands in stark contrast to what we see in modern bioethics at the moment. The biggest problem in bioethics today, and this encompasses abortion, end-of-life issues, reproductive technologies, and a lot of other things, the biggest problem today is what we call philosophical anthropology, your view of the human person. And there is a view of the human person out there that I know you've uncovered with your students in your philosophy classes, and I encounter it when I speak, known as body self-dualism. It is the belief that the real you has nothing to do with your body. In fact, your, your body is nothing but matter in motion. You're free to manipulate any way you want. The real you is your cognitive self, your thoughts, your desires, your aims. That's the real you. And until you have those things, you are not a person with rights. You're a potential person, but not an actual person with rights. Now think about what that worldview justifies. It justifies killing embryos and IVF treatments because they're not yet cognitively functioning. It would justify withdrawing treatment from elderly people who've lost cognitive function. So the biblical view has much greater explanatory power in explaining the human person because it treats us as a dynamic union of body and soul, not a mere mind that happens to be in a body. One of the things I want to do is recommend to listeners to check out The Case for Life and Clipping Christians to Engage the Culture in the new second edition from Crossway. But Scott, I want to ask you, what are some additional resources? One of the things that I like about your work is that you engage good faith arguments from the other side as well. What are some of those resources, books, works that you would recommend kind of on both sides of the debate that can help prepare Christians to engage these questions with both wisdom and courage? Well, let me give you sort of a top five list on each side. So on the other side, I think everybody listening ought to take a look at Peter Singer's book, Practical Ethics. Singer is without question the world's foremost ethicist. I don't agree with him. I think he's badly mistaken, but you need to be aware of him. So I would read his book. I would definitely read Judith Jarvis Thompson's essay, A Defense of Abortion, that you referenced earlier. I would also read David Boonin's book, A Defense of Abortion, that came out in 2002. He's going to argue two things. In part one, he's going to argue that, yes, you're identical to the embryo you once were, but just because you're identical to the embryo you once were does not mean you have the same right to life now as you did then. And that's a little different than Peter Singer, who says there was no you there at conception or even at birth, while Singer is arguing identity Boonin is arguing rights, and you, you need to know the distinction between the two, because Boonin's basically granting our premise that we're identical to the embryos we once were, but we don't have the same right to life then as we do now. Singer's going to say, no, we weren't even there at that point, so killing us back then wouldn't have killed a person. There's a difference in the way they both approach that. I would also think it would be good for listeners to read Michael Tooley's argument in his article, Abortion and Infanticide. Very important. And then a new kid on the block who I think we need to be aware of. I don't mean that word disparagingly, but the new kid is Kate Greasley out of Oxford University. 
very articulate young woman who is very engaging. I don't consider her a flamethrower. I think she's thoughtful. And by the way, her takedown of Judith Jarvis Thompson is the best there is. I mean, she just goes after that whole bodily rights argument in a way that is systematically destructive to Thompson's argument. And her her article is online. But I would read Kate Greasley's book, Arguments About Abortion, to get a handle. So there's five sources from the other side. On the pro-life side, here are my top picks in no particular order. I guess I would say start with Francis J. Beckwith's book, Defending Life. It's a good book on on so many fronts, but he really exposes how pro-abortion arguments assume the unborn aren't human. I would also look at Patrick Lee's book, Abortion and Unborn Human Life. And then, of course, Chris Kayser's book, The Ethics of Abortion, is spectacular. And what I love about Kayser is he he not only gives you a defense of the pro-life view, he gives you the lay of the land. You learn the literature that's in play. And I've tried to emulate that in my own book, giving the readers in the second edition of The Case for Life a broad overview of the literature that's in play so they can be familiar with it. And I relied heavily on Kayser to do that. So Chris Kayser, Francis Beckwith... Pat Lee. Another book that I think is really good to consider is Robert George's book, Embryo. Very good book that he wrote with Christopher Tollefson that gives you not only the scientific defense for human life beginning at fertilization, but the philosophic defense for it as well. And then I think a final book that is a very easy read, but one that is just indispensable is Peter Kreft's book, The Unaborted Socrates. A very fun, engaging uh, read, a dramatic dialogue between an abortionist, Socrates, and a philosopher on what it is that is in play in the abortion debate. Very helpful read, and I would encourage readers to take a look at that. Yeah, those are a wealth of resources, and we'll make sure to link to those in the show notes for listeners' sake. Um, But Scott, I really appreciate your work. Obviously, The Case for Life has kind of become a standard text for so many in this new second edition. I have a feeling will be as well. I just really appreciate the the way you go about this, uh, the nuance and level of complexity you bring to the debate, but also kind of that courage, that winsome courage, kind of digging in these issues, saying, no, these things matter, and this is something we should devote our life to. So thank you so much for joining us today here on the podcast. Well, Jason, thanks for your good work at the ERLC and teaching at Boyce and for having me on the show. The cause of pro-life advocacy is rooted in speaking up for those who have no voice, especially the pre-born. As the pro-life movement enters a new phase focused on state-level advocacy, as well as individual relationships, it will be more important than ever to be able to intellectually defend the dignity and worth of every individual. Resources like Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life, will help to provide you with some of the tools necessary to articulate why each person is made in the image of God and why Christians should be a people committed to justice, especially for the preborn. Though laws and public policy are important, every person should be ready to condemn the evil of abortion, speak up for the preborn, and provide care for mothers. others.